If you have your Bibles, I invite you please to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are back. Now, Paul has addressed problems of divisions and the need for church discipline in chapters 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 6, he dealt with the suing of a brother and sister. He says, no, that's out of the question. And then in chapter 7, he dealt with marriage, uh, divorce, and so on in chapter 7. Now we come to chapter 8. And we actually come to the second major question that the Corinthians had for Paul. In a nutshell, the question was this. Now we're going to look at the text as we go along, but I want to make an introduction to it. In a nutshell, chapter 8, 1 Corinthians is asking this question, or the believers are asking this question of the Apostle Paul. In the church, how much should we let another person's views control our actions? That's the bottom line question. In the church, how much should we let another person's view control our actions? Or, to put it another way, the question is, how much is my personal liberty limited by the opinion of others? Do you think that's an ancient question? No, that's current. In fact, the way we handle this even causes church splits sometimes. Now, at Corinth, the question came to light over the matter of eating meat sacrifice to idols that was brought it about. You see, some, question, some Christians were asking, if a Christian eats meat offered to idols, isn't he or she fellowshipping or participating in some way with the pagan worship of that idol? That's natural, isn't it? If you see me sitting at a bar, with a dark colored drink in my glass, you're going to say, are you drinking something else besides Coke, right? That's just a question. You see, many Christians, many Corinthian Christians were recently converted from paganism and in Corinth, worshiping idols was a major part of that religious scene. Meat were offered. If I were to ask you if you had problems with eating meat today, I was going to say most of you will say no, but that's not true. A lot of people have problems eating meat today, but not in this sense. If I were to ask you, do you have problems with eating meat? Most of you would say no. Well, how many of you fly British Airways at any time? You know, that's the one that flies Europe, England, and all about. Well, this might be a question for you, believe it or not. This question isn't as ancient or foreign as you think it may be. You see, many of these Christians came out of that situation, and now they came and they see other Christians sitting in the temple eating meat. Or going into the market where, boy, they had some good, good buys on used meat. See, meats that were offered at used meat. And they had good, 
good buys. I mean, you could get some good stakes, man. You could really get some good buys. But then these Christians come in, these new Christians. And they say, uh-uh, how can you be a Christian? That's what I was saved from. You ever use that phrase? I did. I still do. As I told you before, I used to gamble. Not just a little bit. Plenty. All right? Pornography. I used to, I was deep in that stuff. Now when now what I one of the main ways I used to gamble, believe it or not, was shooting pool. I never shot pool. Is that the right way? I never shoot pool. I never shot pool. Just for fun. Whenever I shot pool, I did it to gamble. So when I became a Christian, I ran away from all pool tables and pool shooting. And anybody who I saw shooting pool was a sinner. That's true. I was a sinner. I didn't play cards. Because that's the way I used to gamble with cards. But they say, no, we're just having fun playing. No, To me, if you played cards, you were sinner. That's what's happened here with these people with the meat. They come in and they see others who are taking part of something they were saved from. You understand what I'm saying? Now, in a sense, they were doing a good thing. Why? Because they did not want to defile their conscience with this problem. But the problem came when they tried to make their problem somebody else's problem. You understand what I'm saying? They had the problem. But the bigger problem came when they tried to make other people take on their problem. Now, divisions can and often do result from believers being unable to reconcile these kinds of issues that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture. I have an opinion. The Bible isn't clear on it, but I am so convinced of it. If you do it, it is wrong. You understand what I'm saying? And many Christians do know how to deal with these things, and so they separate, they cause division, they fight, they squabble, they call one another all kinds of names. You arrogant, you save, you sanctified. Just because they don't know how to deal with these kinds of questions. Now, as I said before, you may say, well, eating and e- eating meat is no problem for me. Well, let me read you something. I've taken from a British magazine. Actually, some stuff that I get on my news reports. I want to read it for you. In fact, I think I might have it on the screen as well. Is it up there? Yeah. Hallel Britain. Schools and institutions serving up ritually slaughtered meat. Now, this isn't the year 
2000, I'm sorry, oh, what is it, 68, thank you, I forgot what I'm saying, thank you again, you know what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> this isn't 68 or whatever, 38, this is 2010. Halal Britain, schools and institutions serving up ritually slaughtered meat. Another headline. Big British institutions serving up halal only meat option. Now, what's the first question comes to your mind? If you're thinking it's what is halal meat? Well, here's a definition of what halal meat is. Halal meat is prepared according to Sharia law as Muslim by cutting an animal's throat while a Muslim butcher recites a religious verse. Let me read you this. I'm trying to show you the scriptures isn't as outdated as you think it is. Thousands of customers at some of Britain's biggest restaurant chains and sporting venues are being given halal only meat options. Actually, there's no option. That's the only thing. There's no, you've got no option. The revelations from a Mail on Sunday investigation follow uproar over a London Council plans to prefer Islamic halal only menus in the borough's state primary schools and news that British Airways passengers could soon be given halal-only meals without their knowledge. Now, it has emerged that much, if not all, of the meat at Wembley Stadium, that's a big stadium, there all kinds of sports is carried on, a large London hospital and the White Bread Hotel and restaurant chain is all halal. The customers and the patients do know. Halal meat is prepared according to Sharia law by cutting an animal's throat while a Muslim butcher recites a religious verse. Guys in St. Thomas NHS Trust in London and the Mid Staffordshire NHS Foundation, these are major institutions, only serve halal meat. Football fans at Wembley Stadium wanting beef, chicken, and lamb are also only given a halal, halal meat option, while rugby supporters at Trickenham can only buy halal chicken. You all better start asking where does Kentucky Fried Chicken come from? <laughs> Notice now, this is for point. I'm reading a little bit extended here, but I'm, I'm trying to show you. Reading the scriptures are not as outdated and ancient as some people like to think. The Mail on Sunday reported Cheltenham College Public School, which says it has a strong Christian ethos, background, uh, atmosphere, serves halal chicken to pupils without informing them. The investigation also revealed that more than three-quarters of the poultry at Britain's biggest hotel and restaurant group, White Bread, is halal. White Bread owns Beef Eater, Brewer's Fair, and Premier Inn. 
big institutions over there. The owner of the harvester at Toby Cavalry Chains also uses halal meat. A spokesman was unable to give details of what percentage of their meat was halal. I don't object to people of different religious groups being catered for, but it's not something that should be imposed on everybody else, says one of the uh, conservative MPs. Mr. Rosendell, who's also secretary of the Associate Parliamentary Group for Animal Welfare, continued, the vast majority of people in this country would not want the meat of this origin, the idea of slitting throat, because normally the way animals are slaughtered, they sort of give them some tranquilizer before they kill, but not here. The outlets have a duty to let their customers know because some will object very strongly, not least because of the animal welfare implications of halal. One spokesman said, the public have a right to know how their meat is produced. Many people are extremely concerned about animal welfare. What the Mail on Sunday has discovered shows that people are not being kept informed. Well, let me ask you a question. Will you eat or not eat halal meat? Will you or will you not eat halal meat? Only if you know. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's the same situation being faced in Corinth in, I think it was 63. Now you say, well, I can fly, bah not Bahamas there, British Airways. Or when I go there, I go into the stadium, or I go, I go ask, well, See, but right away now, you have to think differently, right? Because you don't want to do anything that you think may go against your Christian beliefs, right or wrong. Now, there's some people here who can say, man, I don't care where that meat come from. If that good meat, I can eat it. <laughs> right or wrong? Yeah. But, <laughs> but yet, you got a wife and a husband or two people going on British Airways and one side can eat and the other one side can eat. The one say, boy, you're going to sit by yourself. I go in the back. No, that's the way to illustrate problems could come up. You say, well, that's not a big problem for me. Well, here is how the same principle is affected. How many of you celebrate Christmas? Most of you. You got some Christians who won't, right or wrong. Why? Because of the pagan connections or origins. Some don't celebrate Easter. Some of you won't even look at Easter egg. Why? Because of the pagan connections. Some of you won't celebrate Halloween. Some will. Why? Some of you won't have a Christmas tree because that's pagan origin, you say. Right or wrong? 
But now some in good conscience can do all of those things. They don't bother them at all. They go to bed, now better sleep than you who don't do them. <laughs> True or false? True. But now when you get up in the morning, you all meet and try to have a cup of coffee together, you all fighting. And then you come back to church to worship. Right or wrong? You say, well, boy, do all those things. Well, here's the principle now. If we are concerned about things that are association with pagans, we shouldn't be involved in doing it. What is the day? What is the day? <laughs> you all starting to learn. <laughs> what is the day for most people? What? Sunday. Where did that come from? Pagan. Monday. March. Or every day of the week, every month of the year has pagan origins. But yet, you have problems with Christmas and Easter, but not with Monday, Sunday, and all of days. I'm, I'm just trying to show you how we sometimes confuse our convictions with our genuine understanding of what Scripture says. Sometimes we take what we call convictions, which is ours, and turn it into biblical truth. Right or wrong? And that's where the problem comes. Man wearing earrings. I just saw that fella put covers there, put his hand on there. <laughs> Tattoos. There's hardly a young Christian girl, and I'm talking about the boys now, who doesn't have a tattoo somewhere you could see and certainly places you can't see. <laughs> right or wrong? What do parents say to those when it comes to these things? That's what's involved. Some young people have left their homes, Christian homes, because they cannot have a tattoo. A young man cannot wear an earring in the air, left or right? You got to know what I mean when I say left or right. Man, <laughs> does God have an answer for us to deal with this? Yes, He does. And it's right here in First Corinthians 8. By the way, movies involved in this too, you know. Some of you sitting here now, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you all wouldn't even look at a movie. Now you all don't miss one. <laughs> right or wrong? Let me give you an illustration now. I'm going to give the illustration not in a negative way because I was a part of the group that did it. In fact, I was the one who pushed that we shouldn't do it. I didn't go to no movies, man. I used to, when it, you know, after I became, uh, before I became a Christian, I used to go to Savoy one day. And, Go to Nassau to yet another day, then go down to uh, the one over in the thing in the middle next day. I didn't miss the movie. Send them, there you go. But then I got saved. I didn't want to even look at the buildings. I came from a group, had the same idea. Movie, dancing, car, all those were sins. Now this is said, now, uh, please, I know I'm going to get condemned for this. But I want to use it as an illustration, all right? It's not a negative connotation at all. It's simply the illustration of how we, it's up to you whether it's evolved or devolved. 
as far as our beliefs are concerned. <laughs> I told you I was going to use it. Assemblies of Brethren proudly present his first movie night. You notice the word proudly? When I grew up, that would be a sin. Now it is proudly being advertised. I can leave that right there. <clears throat> Where are our biblical convictions? Should they change? Our opinions could. But what are biblical convictions? Now see, what the chapter deals with is when we are trying to impose our opinions as being biblical. You understand what I'm saying? How does Paul deal with it? Boy, that's a long introduction. Verse 1, Paul says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. That's the King James. Now what I'm going to do is what I did before. I'm going to give you a paraphrase of this to help you to understand what the King James is saying. And I'm using the King James because that's a familiar passage. We normally use that. But sometimes it's not as clear as it should be. So I'm trying to help you to do that. I will paraphrase that passage like this. Now, to answer your question about food that has been offered to idols, you and I know that we have the right facts about this issue. That's what he's saying. You see, they probably put that phrase in there, uh, the fact that uh, uh, we think it's okay. Paul is saying, I agree with you. We know the facts about idols. We know the facts about offering meat to idols. We know that. Now he deals with this idea of knowledge and the importance of it in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. And he brings in love to show the importance of it. But he begins to lay down the principle here. He will show, as he goes through this passage, that the major underlying problem with the believers at Corinth was selfishness. He did that already in the, what we looked at before. This selfishness resulted in a failure to show love to one another. In fact, when you read Corinthians, you'll find that's the biggest problem they had. They had no love. That's why when, you, when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to see 1 Corinthians 13 in a whole different light than most of you have ever seen before. Because 1 Corinthians 13 wasn't written about marriage only. It's written about us living every day. Paul will show that prophecy, prophecy is a communication of revelation in a way that could be understood. He's going to say that that's more important than speaking in tongues if they ain't got nobody to interpret. So the point he's going to make 
communication of knowledge is important, but knowledge by itself is not sufficient. Notice the next phrase. Knowledge puffeth up. When I read this, I, I thought of the puff fish. You all know the pocky, pocky pine, there you go. You look at them, boy, they flatter you, and all that, boom. That's what Paul is talking about here. Somebody who has knowledge but uses wrong, he puffs up like a balloon. Like a puff ship, puff of fish. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, love edifies. That's his major message. That's going to be his message right through the end of chapter 14. <clears throat> so, what Paul is saying now, while this knowledge we have concerning idols may make us feel proud, in what sense? I know more than these young Christians who have come up who got a problem with it. Now while this knowledge may make us feel proud because we know little more than they do, it is love that builds up the body of Christ, not knowledge by itself. Now it's important to understand that he's talking about knowledge by itself, not knowledge uh, per se, in other words, it's knowledge alone, knowledge without love is what is wrong, not knowledge itself. He's addressing the boastful kind of pride a person may demonstrate because he or she is well versed in scripture or simply because they have been a Christian for a longer time. Or they've been involved in the ministry for a longer time than the other person. They get the opinion, I know it all. I know more than you. Who are you to oppose me? That's the attitude he's dealing with. Notice now verse 2. In fact, notice before we go on, the contrast between love and knowledge. I call it a contrast between blowing a bubble and building a love house. Verse 2, if any man thinks that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. Now that's a slap in the face. Let me paraphrase it. You should know this, if any of you who claim to know all there is about this subject shows by that claim that your claim is false. I call it a suicidal statement. Do you know what a suicidal statement is? It denies itself the moment it is stated. It kills itself the way it is said. For instance, I call them back there, Greg, you can hear me? I say, Greg said he couldn't hear me. No, I didn't say that. I said, Greg said he couldn't hear me. Suppose he said that. What happened in that exchange? I did hear Greg, whatever you said. Right? I did hear Greg. Sweetie. If I got me said, nobody can hear me say anything. 
Greg, can you hear me? He says, no. <laughs> That's a suicidal question. Why? Because it kills itself the moment he states it. That's what's happening here. This is a suicidal statement. What he's saying is, none of you know everything about this issue perfectly. There are important, there is in fact an important element that you know nothing of. That's his implication. And that's going to be his purpose, to show those people who said they knew everything about this issue, hey, you don't know everything else, you're missing out an important element. You don't know as much as you think you know. Paul is saying that no matter how much we may know or think we know about any subject, there is in fact something we may and in fact do not know about that subject or issue. Either because of a blind spot or just plain oversight or failure to consider all aspects of the issue. That's all he's saying. He said, now those of you who say you know everything about this issue, I can show you something that you don't know. You see, when we claim that we know everything about the issue, that's dogmatism, right or wrong. It leads to arrogance and false dogmatization. There's a place we should be dogmatic, but he's talking about false dogmatism. Someone has put it like this, and I quote, if you put yourself in a position of weighing something only from your point of view, you're almost put self in a position of being infallible. In the words, if it's only your opinions that counts, then you're God. Right or wrong? And see, that's what happens in a lot of our arguments. We only listen to our proof. We only listen to what we have to say. So we become infallible. There's no God, a person says. Are you sure of that? Yes, I'm sure. You sure there's no God? Yes. Have you looked under every rock crevice you've been in every place looking? Yeah, there's no God. Then you're God. Because you know everything. Another suicidal statement. This is Paul is arguing about here. We're putting ourselves to be infallible when we say our point of view is the only true point of view. Notice verse 3 now. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. That's the King James. Here's how I paraphrase it. However, the person who loves God is the one of whom God has perfect and complete knowledge. In other words, he's going to point us to somebody who does have complete knowledge. And he's going to show what the basis of it is. The person who loves God is the one of whom God has perfect and complete knowledge. This is mine now. To borrow a phrase, God knows everything about his own. Doesn't God say God knows his own? And God knows everything about, there's nothing about us that God doesn't know. They don't think you hide anything from God. But the wonderful thing about that, as you heard before, though he knows everything about me, he still what? loves us. Now Paul does a little play on words and concepts here. And Paul loved to do this. If you, you, you go through the scriptures you will see it again and again. 
He gives an illustration of genuine, perfect, unfettered knowledge. And that's the knowledge God has of those who love him. There's no failure. There's nothing lacking in God's knowledge of those who love him. Who love him. Paul is saying that it is a perfect love for God that is the basis for God's perfect knowledge of the one who loves him. Now this teaching is based on a divine principles in scripture that we that the more we know of God the more we come to love God and the more we love God the more we want to what to know about him. So love and knowledge are mixed in with a genuine intimacy with God. Listen to how Paul explains it in Colossians chapter 1. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, his salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled, notice now, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good works. And notice now, and don't what? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Now there is a cycle here. Better a spiral because it goes up. But here it is. Notice the text. Being filled with the knowledge of his will leads to what? Walking in a worthy manner, which in turn leads to what? Bearing fruit, which in turn leads to what? Increasing in the knowledge of God, which results in what? Being filled with the knowledge of God. And the cycle continues. In other words, what he's saying is here, increasing in the knowledge of God brings intimacy with God. Paul is saying it is that which causes us to love God more. And God knows us perfectly. So he knows the purity of our love for him. Paul is going to show that the purity of our love for God that comes from a knowledge of God is shown how we demonstrate that love to one another. If we don't demonstrate it properly, then we cannot say that we really love God. Because those who love God are going to love their brothers and sisters. Right or wrong? Paul is dealing with some heavy doctrinal stuff here, but it's something that is to be, lead, to be lived out in our life in an everyday situation. Now let me finish this and then I'll close for the day. He goes on to verse 4. As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. 